This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, we'll react to events at the Emirates Stadium as Arsenal stay top of the Premier League with victory over Liverpool. So many penalty decisions to debate this weekend. VAR handballs as well. We'll get into all of those, including the ones at Goodison Park and at the London Stadium as well. We'll talk about a positive evening for Cristiano Ronaldo and Manchester United. Gary O'Neill's credentials to be the future Bournemouth boss, the European Super League, the Lionesses win over the world champions United States and we'll react to the false coming out of the former Spain goalkeeper Ica Casillas and what that means for LGBT players in the game. This is The Game. Hello and welcome to The Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wissencroft alongside Gregor Robertson, Tony Cascarino and Alison Rudd on a rather cold Monday morning. But the weekend provided us with the heat. Something to enjoy anyway. Uh, it came at the Emirates Stadium. There are a few, to be fair, end-to-end games across football this weekend. It's, it's, it's been a pretty level Premier League season so far in terms of quality for most of the league. Obviously, we know a couple of clubs are showing real quality, namely Arsenal, top of the Premier League. A 3-2 win over Liverpool at the Emirates Stadium. It was a game that gave us so much to discuss, but ultimately Liverpool are now 14 points behind the leaders. Jurgen Klopp felt the big moments just went against his side in what was a a pretty chaotic game. Really, two questions come from this. Liverpool, title gone. Arsenal, title on. What do we think? Uh, Alison Rudd. (laughs) (laughs) I've got to say, the Arsenal fans are desperate to hear you give their side some credit, finally. Is today the day? Yeah, no, they're playing well. Uh, But you don't need to play that well against Liverpool at the moment, do you? I mean, uh, the funniest thing of all was afterwards Mikel Arteta felt he had to big up Liverpool to say I think they're going to play well in the next few games because who have they got next they've got Manchester City and if Arsenal are going to stay top of the league they need City to drop keep dropping the odd point now and then and he felt I mean we've reached the point where an Arsenal manager feels he has to give Liverpool a bit of a boost make them feel a bit better about themselves so they might just get a draw against That's Manchester City That's his faint City. praise isn't it? Very, <laughs> very faint praise yeah. it's, We've talked a lot about how what Arteta's done is gone in and made a flaky club strong and he's got rid of personalities he doesn't like he's prepared to invest in youth and keep playing the youth and for there to be an ethos what we know from the documentary about him and from everything he says post and pre-match these days, it's all about emotion for him, which I find very strange. I don't think you win the title by talking about how you handle a game emotionally. But if that was the main problem with Arsenal, their mentality, then he's getting that right. The key thing, I think, is that the fans believe it. They like him and they believe in the project. So that what you don't get now at the Emirates is this um, disgruntlement as soon as things go wrong, which I think hampered them horribly. I I don't think you can overstate what that must be like to play in. You're a big club with big stature like Arsenal, but your fans, it's not that they turned on the team regularly. It was just that they made it plain this was not acceptable. And then you could see them wobble towards the end of quite a lot of games they should have been winning. The, The atmosphere in the game against Liverpool was one of belief even when Liverpool equalised twice, it was one of belief. There wasn't that, oh, it's gone. You know, self-fulfilling prophecy, or it's going to go wrong again. So if you get, I think Arteta's done very well in making that a sort of um, a, a, a around the club feel, you know, from the stands onto the pitch in the dressing room. We can do it. We have the ability to do it. Uh, which, you know, you, you want me to keep praising them? I'll keep doing it. Uh, <laughs> I think that's probably the most, the most important thing. And, uh, it, you, I think people also said they're a, they're a team that are too young. Where are the leaders and so on? But um, I mean, footballers are just getting younger and younger, and um, I think they're showing a maturity simply because the managers told them he believes in them. So yeah, excellent, excellent stuff from Arsenal. Yeah. <laughs> Tony, you were there. Gritted teeth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tony, you were there. Yes. I was how there, how right. good were Arsenal? Slash, how bad were Liverpool? Would a fair have been a, a would a draw have been a fair result? Well, Arsenal beat a mid-table team, so let's get that one out of the way first of all. Foremost is Liverpool are a mid-table team at the moment, and they've had a huge amount of games this season so far. 
where they've played really poorly, whether it's Napoli, where it's Fulham at the start of the season, Crystal Palace, Man United, you know, and quite a number of games already. If Liverpool hadn't a beat, I know this is hypothetical, but if they hadn't a beat Bournemouth 9-0, they'd have a minus goal difference. They'd have one minus one. That 9-0 victory makes their goals column look far, far better. I didn't agree with Klopp's formation, start of the game. I was on radio last weekend this week uh, and I talked about the worry of um, the wide men, Trossard, against with Brighton going up against Trent. And it's not just Trent the problem, but behind him is a problem. What happens in spaces behind him that get exposed? That happened with Trossard. I said it yesterday morning. Martinelli is a problem for Liverpool. But it wasn't just Martinelli. It ended up being both wide men were a problem against Liverpool. Van Dijk is so off his game. I can't believe I'm still having conversations with people who say he's the best centre-half in the world or one of them. Well, he hasn't been that for quite a long time. And he certainly hasn't played that well, certainly this season. And I'd add into that, playing two in midfield with Thiago is a problem in itself because Thiago's a fabulous footballer, can't make a challenge. He's not a winner of the ball. Liverpool have gone away from that three-man midfield when they had Vanaldrum, Henderson and Fabinho, they would literally chase all over the pitch, win the ball, they'd fill in for each other, and when they got it, they could move it quickly to the forwards. Mo Salah was like a young lad making his sort of early games. Mo Salah's a tremendous player, and I'm watching him hardly have the ball. And when he does, he's trying to make things happen, and it's not happening for him at the moment. Mo's off his game, and... There was a number of reasons why Liverpool are poor, but I did think yesterday's formation, they had Thomas Partey, Odegaard and Xhaka. And them three all played into Liverpool, uh, sorry, against Liverpool yesterday, all creating problems in different ways. Xhaka was taking chances getting forward. Partey was sitting and kept picking up the loose balls, moving it quickly. And Odegaard was, when he was on it, he was doing things literally on the edge of Liverpool's box. And they paid a huge price for that. Liverpool at the moment are a mid-table team and no more. So this title challenge has got had gone after I watched the Man United defeat. When they lost to Man United in the manner, manner they did, Liverpool weren't for competing this year for the title. Totally after, gone for you. I just thought that day, I thought, this isn't a team that's going to compete for the title. But is it over? Yeah. Oh, well, without a doubt. Yeah? Okay. You know, Man City are... We'll talk about Arsenal or whatever, Man City, but from I'm talking basically as a Liverpool fan and probably should have given Arsenal... And Alison touched on it. There was something incredible about Arsenal that didn't you can't really get from TV as easy as you can see when you're there. Every time the ball went out of play, they dashed to the ball, got it and threw it in. Uh, just high intensity Purpose. from the... Just get it in as quick as they could all the time. And it, and it felt they kept catching Liverpool, even with yeah. simple throw-ins. Yeah, no, that was the biggest... The most jarring thing for me is that you know that energy, that lack of energy that you you yeah, yeah. you you know you recognise you associate with Liverpool and particularly that that midfield three is gone and it's there with Arsenal now. It's really mm. there and like I, I don't know. Also the way they kind of respond to setbacks now too. That it's you know it's something it's something new. It's can I ask you all a question? Just to, did anyone find it weird that Klopp turned his back not to watch the penalty? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, kind of. It felt like it was a World Cup final. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, did, I, I didn't get it. I was like, why are you turning your back on a penalty against Arsenal in a Premier League game? This is not the Champions League final where you're really, you know... He's turned it. I thought that was weird. Maybe he thought it was such a disgraceful decision that he had to turn his back on it in <laughs> form of protest. It was but, a nonsense. Yeah. yeah. I, yes. Don't think it was a pen. No. No, I didn't either. But then, soft. You know, I thought it was very soft. I just don't want it to be a penalty in any world that we live in. Uh, we're seeing a lot of this now, I think. Um, and look, you, yeah, we'll talk about VAR, but there are a lot of soft decisions now. Um, but I do think the players have noted on super slow motion, on VAR, yeah. The, the slightest touch can look like a pretty serious foul. Like they've noted, it doesn't take a lot to retrospectively give a decision. So if you get touched, just go down, appeal, because then they'll definitely have a look at it, roll around for a bit, and they'll probably they'll probably give it. I mean, it wasn't, a, it wasn't yeah. given on VAR, yeah. but it wasn't overturned either. Do you know what's happening? There's soft decisions in the 18-yard box, but not in the centre of the pitch. Yeah, well, they're waving on in the centre yeah. of the pitch, and well, you know the old argument of, oh, if that would have been in the penalty area, that wouldn't be given, or you know that sort of argument. And I'm thinking, 
Well, now we've got to the stage where it's soft in the 18 yard box, but in the middle of the field, it's, yeah, it's not your way to play. Like, we'll let the game go. And we're, I think most of us are quite enjoying that. But then you see <laughs> the exact opposite, like the just decisions that shouldn't be given. And yeah. But look, Arsenal were, Arsenal were brilliant. I, I, this, you know, despite that and that penalty call, they des- I think they deserve to win. I think Klopp was wrong. It wasn't a draw. And the energy that they have, Martinelli is, is becoming a star, a real star. And Saka was outstanding as well. Both both wingers, how direct they are, again, it's pace on the pace on the break, and they've got authority in the middle of the pitch now, which was always kind of completely absent for so long. Mm. You know, I've spoken so much about Saliba and keeping party fit as well. Yeah. I just think it's so important. You know, this is the thing that happens now. Everyone goes right, okay, are Arsenal a title contender? And you think, what would make them fall away? And you think, look, look at look at injuries, and there's parts of the team actually where you think, you know, I, I think okay, Saliba, mm. you could bring him move Ben White in and, and they'd probably they'd, they'd right. do alright yeah. I think if they lost Party, they're in trouble yeah yeah. Party, and he's had an injury you know he's, he's he's had a bad record at Arsenal so he's he's the only one I mean you know Jesus as well has such been such a, an impact they're the two really I think but otherwise this is a strong squad and Arsenal I think you know they're showing that they can they can go deep into the season challenging I don't think they're going to win the league, but I think they can go deep into the season as a challenger. The, prob- the problem with Liverpool, though, is I think when we look back at the season, you'll—I don't know where we'll finish, but it—it's strange. It began with domestically with Fulham going mm. to Anfield. No, it was the, no, it was, it was, it was, it was at Craven Cottage. It was lunchtime kickoff, and I think people thought, "Oh well, sometimes teams take a while to get going." Because Liverpool had just beaten City in the Community Shield, and mm. we're thinking, "This is—they're looking good, Liverpool. They're looking as slick as they were last season." But the interesting thing was that Fulham had no fear, and they—they they had high energy levels and pressed, mm. and it, Liverpool was slightly astonished. And you get into this rhythm where, and then Napoli did the same thing. They had no fear when they played Liverpool in Europe. Mm. As soon as you see a pattern emerging, everyone else piles in, and they think, "Ah, you don't have to be scared of Liverpool anymore. Mm. We can do, we can go for them." Look at their high line; just win a few balls, we're in. Mm. And it's it's it, they've had they had an aura. There were games Liverpool won when they won the title that they shouldn't have won. They won it purely on aura, and I think teams being slightly scared to play their own game. Now we're now in the snowball effect, so that. It's going to keep on happening. Teams will not be scared of Liverpool because teams like Fulham and Napoli have shown the way. If you just if you just have no fear, they will crumble. And I agree with you a hundred percent, Tony, about the formation because what it's it's so counterproductive. The sort of attacking third of the pitch is so congested now. There's no room for a player like Salah anymore. What what does he go? What is he, he's supposed to be a winger now or what? It, there's nowhere. It's congested. Have four basically four attackers. I just think there's always going to be one player who's not doing very much because there's no space for them. It's just like overload for no good reason. Nunes played really well because that suits him because he's an old-fashioned centre-forward. But everybody else looks a bit lost. I think all the... You know all the things you're saying about Liverpool there. Again, you can flip them on their head for Arsenal. Like how much higher they're playing up the pitch, the influence of Saliba, and that it just it inspires confidence. That if the ball goes to the top, he's just kind of eats up the ground. And he, that one where he who was it? He was chasing back, and he kind of leaned them off the ball on the touchline. Mm. Uh, it was Diaz. Mm. Um, it's just like such authority. It gives everyone so much more confidence. And there's just a lot of things that, that you know. I think that's part of what. Arteta's talking about when he speaks about emotion too. It's them being in that frame of mind and having that kind of front foot authority, do, do and like know, to, you know, just actually being the team that are going to go and stamp their authority on the game. That's I think that's what he's talking about, and that's what they're showing, and that's what Liverpool have lost. Trent Alexander-Arnold. I didn't like the cameras; they constantly cut to him. How many goals were his fault? Is there an issue? Is there a situation? How do you solve it? Or do you just keep playing Trent Alexander-Arnold? Well, can't keep playing him because he's got a... Apart from the injury, but I mean, without the injury, how would you have solved that situation? What would you have done next if you were Jurgen Klopp? I mean, Jurgen Jurgen Klopp would have kept faith in him, undoubtedly. But the first one was 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 a a brilliant goal. Brilliantly worked goal. Really kind of a dynamic, you know, attacking move. But that's kind of what what Trent's issue is actually that those balls in behind yeah. and being you know caught unaware is not really being at the right body shape things like that. Yeah, yeah. The second one was it felt like me he was trying to overcompensate for the things that have been going on before. He saw an, he's kind of edging edging hoping he was going to take a big touch out of his feet 
ran over Martinelli cut back brilliantly and him and Jordan Henderson were sent for a taxi so the second one felt felt more like to me he was compensating he, it was like in his mind he knew, he knew he'd messed up with the first goal he knew he was under the spotlight but Klopp would have kept kept going with him there's no question about that um, and you know I, I don't see what else you could do well, the idea was that Jordan Henderson always sits in for whenever Trent gets ventures too far forward. Yesterday, Trent got caught a few times, and it isn't a Trent problem, just Trent. It's the back line. They're vulnerable when teams, especially when the ball's being won in front of them and they're coming onto Liverpool. Liverpool are so susceptible to that high line, ball in between, centre-half and full-back, they're in trouble. So you have to get squeeze and get tighter and force it out wide. Liverpool don't do that very well. Trent's the most attacking of the yeah. defenders. So yeah. he will always look like he's the one who's out of position and making the error because he's the one who's was not the, where you expect was, him to be. But, was but, it the third that's, goal? that's true. But I said this the other week, a lot of the goals have nothing to do with, his, with, with how he attacks. That first goal had nothing to do with how he attacks. Liverpool were set, were set up against a, a breakaway and... They, he he allowed a, a ball to be slipped through for the winger who, who ran in behind him. He wasn't attacking at any point in that move. So was it, was the it? second one, the second one, the same. The second one, he, he should have, should have held his position. He's got to guard the goal. So it's true, absolutely. And you know, Klopp had an impassioned sort of defence of him about the way they play and how he has to be part of the pressing. I remember being at that Fulham game, and when the other team's got a goal kick, he's pressing like their fullback. It's it's insane. Like I I, mm. I, I get all that. But a lot of the goals and a lot of the mistakes have nothing to do with the way that he presses or attacks. It's it's lapses. Well, it's, it's spacing behind him that is the problem. You know, no, not always gonna... because he's high up no, the pitch. But Sometimes it... just because he switches off and he sees let somebody in behind him. Yesterday, Gregor, I think it was the third goal. Trent is standing in the centre half position when they're attacking Arsenal. He ends up centre half, and I think it's Jordan Henderson's in the right back position. Then he tries to recover, but he's started in the centre half position. I don't get that. If I'm a full. It was a breakaway and there was 3v3. Yeah, it was I think, three, it was I think three he against was last three. man and that's but, just the way but it was. I don't actually, it doesn't matter what position you play actually, on, in the three on three, he's just made a, an error in judgment there that you shouldn't be going over and leaving a player in the middle of the goal free. The only, like way, you go over, a, the only way you go over is, is if Jen, Jordan Henderson's completely taking out the game and even yeah, then, yeah, even yeah, then you're course. going half and half. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're trying exactly. to... So it was, it was just a, Henderson it was, a was still moment. there one on one with his man he really shouldn't have, have run over and it didn't help well okay ask the question then did anyone here think that Martinelli might cause lots of problems because he chased him because <laughs> I bloody well did before the game well that was the, that was to be honest that was the only thing I'd say and it wasn't actually Martinelli who scored the first goal but it was the intent of Xhaka to overload Trent mm. which was very clear even though 58 seconds had passed because Xhaka made such an effort to get into that area that it was maybe going to be a theme um, later on in the game. I wasn't too sure it, it played out that way, but I think there was a bit of an intent there to to maybe pick on Trent a little bit from Arsenal. Anyway, look, we, we dealt with the deciding penalty in the game just very quickly. Gabriel, handball from Jota. Was he too close? Was his hand high enough that it should have been a penalty? Would you have said spot kick, Alison? Yes, but only because the day before there'd been something <laughs> very similar. So, you, you, you know, you think in the Newcastle game, so you think, well... If if you, yeah, I, I wouldn't have given either of them actually because I do think it's really tough on the person defending when the ball is you're so close to the ball, and then who's to say your arm is in an unnatural position if you are honestly just trying to do your job, but given that one was one was given even though it was close range, I don't see how you can then not give the other one. So yeah, it should have been a penalty based on recent history. Everything else said there, I agree with because it was it, to me it was literally uh, Groundhog Day again the day before yeah. again. I just, don't, just I don't want I don't want that to be apparently no. in the game of football. No, no. <laughs> I, I, you can, look, the big thing with problems, Hugh, is that you're giving someone a spot kick from twelve yards from goal against a one on one for something that's. I had this debate with my mates yesterday. I just don't get it. If you, I, I said this, I actually think you should get a penalty. Imagine you bring a player down who's one on one with goal, but they're forty yards out. Yeah. But it's just you've denied a clear goal scoring opportunity. They're just running through on the goalkeeper. Clearly a goal scoring opportunity. But if you bring them down, it's just a foul. That should be a penalty because that is a denial of a goal scoring opportunity. What shouldn't be a penalty? Is something that doesn't deny a goal scoring opportunity. We're not going to go into that debate now. But I'm just underlining that I don't think it should have been a pen, and I just think penalties maybe need to be reassessed 
Let's move to events at Goodison Park. Positive evening for Manchester United. Uh, notable for a couple of things. Cristiano Ronaldo's 700th club goal. And despite an error leading to a goal, Casemiro reminding us that there might be a pretty decent player in there if Eric Ten Hag actually chooses to use him. Anthony scoring in all of his Premier League games as well. Interesting in terms of the impact the wing has made since arriving from Ajax. Let's start with Ronaldo. Gregor, did Cristiano Ronaldo show us that there is a big use for him at Manchester United? Martial, he has been playing well, albeit he suffered an injury as, as well. Yeah. Well, look, there is a use for him. It's just that it's, he's not. He's still not... All the same issues are still there. Um we, look, his his finish was clinical. The way you know, it's the way of keeping it keeping it so low and close to the goalkeeper, so he can't he can't get down quick enough to get there. It's a brilliant finish, and we know that we know that's that's there. But it's part of the bigger picture in which he's got to he's got to kind of press from the front and show energy and sort of bit of dynamism when he's getting on in here. So it's it's still going to be difficult for him to be anything other than an impact player, I think, for United. And it's whether he's going to be willing to do that. And I think the answer is no. I thought I thought United looked. Better with him on the pitch. Mm. Okay. They Why? had they had um, they had personality. Some of his facials at the moment are just like <laughs> brilliant, aren't they? <laughs> just going, what's going on in his mind? He's, even when he's coming on the pitch, he's kind of like. Yeah. And why yeah. wouldn't yeah. why this wouldn't why wouldn't any team want someone with that attitude though, Gregor? With those facial expressions, it's that, okay, it's that okay sense of self belief, yeah. that yeah. the sense that he's always on the cusp of history. Always, there's always something about to happen to him because he scored so many goals, and he's just a phenomenon. I don't. I think it's really strange. I just I can't imagine being a football manager and having him on the bench so much. And he, he, who knows when he would have come on if there hadn't been an injury? I mean, it's like, you know, he came on in the 29th minute. He probably wouldn't have come on till the 79th had mm. everything gone to, to, to Ten Hag's plan. And yet when he did come on, there was just something. I can't imagine any defence thinking, yippee, they've put Ronaldo on. And it, does, it doesn't matter how old he is, because I know you mentioned in your column, that, uh, Tony, that you feel he's lost the edge on a lot of things. Yeah, well, of far age. the time, but it doesn't, definitely Let's not focus on his age. Look at what you can see happening. Mm. He's still... Has his age hasn't dimmed his self confidence? Oh, well, his, that, no. And he had, he had pace for his finish, authority with his finish. I just think he just brings a sort of well, clinical attitude, if not always a clinical edge. I just, I just, I just think United look more like a proper football team when he's playing for them. I, when I was mentioning in a column about Father Time, because it does get get us all at different times, and he's clearly not the player he once was. And being thirty seven, that's understandable. But he will never ever lose his belief as you know he's got a huge ego, which is great for him because the inner belief of what he can do in a football field that in the ultimate moment you would trust him to deliver. I, I truly believe Ronaldo's not lost that at all, and he will still get goals without a doubt for United this season. So we're penalising him for not being quite as good as he used to be, but I well, still no. think he's is better than most. Well, players. what's the difference? It's Al? about what's energy. It? It's about he needs to you need to display energy and sort of and run around a lot more <laughs> for the rest of the game. Give him a chance; he's better than anyone else at the club at finishing it. Absolutely, no one's in disagreement. But well, what's I'm the sure. difference between a young player that's not ready and an old player that's not quite the player he once was? You know, the bottom line is, is Ten Hag's made a call on him that he doesn't believe he's going to play week in, week out in his starting lineup. I watched him in midweek in the Europa League. Um, it was difficult for him because the team weren't playing particularly well on the day either. Um, he will still make big things happen this season, in my opinion. And so that's why you want to keep him. I did, didn't agree with keeping a player of that stature that's achieved so much in the game that you just use him as a bit part player. I, I thought that was strange by the football club. And you free up a lot of money to go and do something else with maybe the forward you'd want in. Okay. Thank you. All right. Well, as a Manchester United fan, <laughs> yeah. uh, look, he, he had more energy because he hasn't been playing as much. Like, I think ultimately that's what you see. Like, he should play more minutes probably. Should he start if Martial and Rashford are both fit? I, I personally don't think so because I just think what we need right now in terms of the forward areas is that mobility that he's kind of lacked so far. But I think we all agree he's the best goal scorer at the club. I just think he needs to be used more. That's it, really. Um, he will obviously get used more with the injury. Um, 
But yeah, I think Martial needs some credit as well because he's, you know, he's had an upturn in form. He has produced something so far this season. A lot of people thought he'd be leaving the football club. So sad that the injuries come for him at this point in time. But in a way, I was thinking about the World Cup and I, I think I said this to you the other week that... I think Ronaldo might have been content with just staying fit for the World Cup, knowing with the size of his ego that if he plays well for Portugal, his his global legacy will be intact if he has a good World Cup. And obviously, we think we all agree that this is probably his last one, right? So maybe he cares a little bit more about that at this point in time. And the fact that he was getting a bit of a rest meant that we, we might have seen a fresher Ronaldo at the World Cup um, and maybe a sharper Ronaldo at the World Cup because he won't have been as worn out by the Premier League. So maybe he's a little bit sad that he's going to be starting every week. That's all I'm saying at this point. <laughs> you in did time. say, Greg, conspiracy theories. <laughs> <laughs> Another handball to address in this game, Marcus Rashford's goal disallowed. The question here being about a second phase, because we'll come on to Mikel Antonio's against Fulham. In fact, I might as well introduce it now. Antonio's was very similar to Marcus Rashford. Skipped past the defender, both of them. There was a little ricochet Uh, clearly hit both of their hands. Antonio basically had an opportunity to score. The goalkeeper rebuffed it. It came back to him and then he scored, which was seen as a second phase of play. So the handball didn't come into it. Marcus Rashford tried to go around Jordan Pickford, who did get a leg onto the ball, but because it continued on to goal and he then scored, it, it wasn't another phase. So should they both have been given? Should they both have been disallowed? What's going on? <laughs> well, no, the, the, on this, is, the this, is, this is this weird thing that, that I mean, honestly, if we rewound 10 years, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't make this up, that wow. for some reason we've reached the point where if the ball touches your hand, even tiny, 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 tiny amount and you're not even aware of it as the player and it has no bearing on anything at all. But if there's some touch, then that makes the goal completely invalid, ruled it out. And we, we all know, so, so to have ruled out Antonio's goal because of that tiny, tiny, tiny touch that he had no, he, he, had no, he couldn't really do much about it. It was incidental. Everyone knows that would be stupid to, to rewind to, to, to make a goal invalid because of that. And that's why, and that's why they introduced the phases of play because you can't have this incy wincy touch ruling out goals. But what, but 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 why they decided that had to be there in the first place is is absolutely ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. But it, it, in terms of the way the law is, the right goal was disallowed because because yes, of the yes. phases of play. I mean, yes. but, but it's, it's the rule that's wrong. But I can actually we not just talk about common sense here again. Like, can we not just talk about that? It's, as Alison said, if 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 you if there's nothing you can do about it, and it's not like this is one moment where you could actually use the term unnatural body position. So like if your arm is away from you, it ricochets, hits your arm and goes down. Fair enough, because it's not even like within the the boundaries of your body. If it, it both of these would have hit his body anyway, you know, it's got to be something pretty clear, like clear and obvious. These all these phrases have been thrown into my mind, and I hate it. They're just common sense. It's not. It's there's no way on earth that these should be. Penalized. I wouldn't have given either of them, personally. Because <laughs> I, because what the heck are we doing? <laughs> the common sense, and I agree with you on that point. But the common sense should be, you know, sometimes, and you, you, of course, both of you know this from from playing, and you, Alison, too, that sometimes the ball, you know, you might go into a challenge, the ball spins up, and it's not flying off in a different trajectory. It maybe rolls up your body, and then it, it and it rolls up the arm, for example. But it's it's going to land in the same spot. You haven't affected really where the ball is going. But in these two incidents, the handball does affect whether the players can basically get it under control or not. If it doesn't hit the arm, they don't control them going in on goal. Can we not? And that's why I don't think they should be allowed. That's the only reason, right? Cool. Not that it hit their hand, but that it hit their hand and allowed them to have the ball in a position to score. So, can we just say, can we not recognise accidental? Listen, it's good. It, it, it to will, me, to it, me, Tony, it will go back to that. Believe me, it will go back to being, was it deliberate handball or was it accidental? Well, like, I it just, will go back to that because there's so many variations of a handball But you now, can, it's Hugh, you can find... It's like the fifth terrace act. But even Scamacha's, like, so what if it hit his hand? 
I don't care. I would have had no influence on, unless it really hit his hand and like you know he's yes. controlled it with his hand. It clipped his knuckles. It doesn't matter. But his finish was sublime, and the not, ball was there. Not, it barely changed it. It might have clipped his knuckles. <laughs> well, the only reason we know for sure it clipped it's his knuckles is he didn't. He didn't celebrate. He didn't, and he didn't celebrate. I bet that could have been. Oh. You could have said that was offside. But this is this is what I'm saying. Okay, those two those examples, both of them, if you like, at the West Ham game are what I'm talking about. Skamakas brushes his hand, doesn't really affect where the ball's going. I would have said that goal should stand. Mikel Antonio would not have got the ball under control had it not hit his arm. And therefore, I think that goal shouldn't have stood because it would have just gone off for a throw, probably, had like, it not touched you his can, arm. You can give it... More violently, the Rashford one, because I think that... that, that all right, it hits his chest, but it... You know, he w- he wouldn't have got it under control. Yeah. I think unless you, you can unless give an example a... of ev- everything. Yeah. Everything has an example. Now, for me, you can make this a lot simpler by going accidental. Do you think he actually deliberately tried to hand that ball? Yeah, and then got... you can come to some conclusion. Yeah, it's got to be like you're actually hitting the ball into your path. You know what I mean? Okay. Listen, we've got about two minutes left. Too much of a handball, <laughs> and we could go on and on and on. So very quickly, and the Bournemouth fans will hate us for this. Gregor, I know you wanted to give a, a brief mention to Gary O'Neill, enhancing his credentials a bit further to become the uh, next permanent Bournemouth manager. An impressive comeback victory over Leicester this weekend. Five games unbeaten, and it comes uh, after a, another comeback against Nottingham Forest last month as well. Yeah, I mean, it's remarkable. I think they conceded 16 goals in the three games preceding uh, Scott Parker's dismissal. And now they've conceded four and five, two clean sheets. Mm. This is good work on the training ground. And you know, I don't think there was any point where anyone thought he was going to have any chance of being the Bournemouth manager, yeah. <laughs> particularly because there's a takeover and, you know, eminently yeah, going to go through American investor Bill Foley. I think it's about £150 million. Pounds. How much has it undermined uh, Scott Parker? Because he said he didn't at the start of the season when they were looting games, didn't have enough players good enough. Yeah, well, it certainly makes his his, uh, his utter- public utterances seem very stupid now, absolutely. But even if he did think that, I don't think you need to say in public. Mm. He was angry about the way that they, they, they dealt with their summer business, but that, a lot of that was because of who their owner was. Max and Damon, uh, Russian, a lot of his money was uh, kind of, I think he was impacted by the the war in Ukraine slightly and he was looking to sell the club so he didn't really want to spend any money in the summer mm. that that message transmits to the players doesn't it mm. so Gary Neal's come in and he's, I think he's been a breath, breath of fresh air Ryan Christie said after the game that you know the players really want him to be the manager um, and they look like he's I think it looks tank. like when they take their I think he said it actually when they take their handbrake off when they kind of you know, throw caution to the wind a little bit they look like a good team and he's right They when they were kind of on the front foot, they've looked they've looked like a really good team, and you know. So, so I think if you look at their fixtures now as well, they've got Fulham, Southampton, West Ham. You know, all reasonably winnable games, and then Spurs, Leeds, Everton before before the World Cup. I think there's a good chance that the job will be his before the World Cup. You agree? Well, it should be because I think that's one of the the big turnarounds we've seen in football in recent times. Yeah. Lose nine nil at Anfield. And your manager says, well, you know, this is what happens when you don't invest. And then you go on the run that you've been on. Yeah, they've lost Lloyd Kelly as well, who's their mm-hmm. best, best defender. But they're just kind of, as I say, they just look well organised. A lot of the time when they're out of, play, out of possession, it's like two banks of four and it's pretty simple. But... And they're enjoying themselves. They look like a yeah. proper team having fun. Yeah, difficult place to go to again. So Bournemouth, little Bournemouth, you know. <laughs> little Bournemouth are back, basically. Yeah. Okay, well, look, we'll see if Gary O'Neill uh, does get that job. Plenty more still to come on the Game Podcast, by the way. Remember, if you're enjoying it, uh, rate us, leave us a review, and make sure you're subscribed. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves... Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
you really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, is the European Super League back? Barcelona's president, Joan Laporta, has claimed that a European Super League is needed to deal with financial doping by state-owned clubs such as Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain. You may well scoff, given the situation Barcelona are currently in, but in a speech to the club's General Assembly, Laporta said a revised Super League format would no longer be a closed competition for founder members. Maybe that was one of the key points, that they were pulling up the drawbridge, if you like, on the rest of European football. Let's get the latest on this with Martin Ziegler of the Times, a chief sports reporter who's been following the story. Martin, how alive is the ESL and, and what clubs are still believing that it could happen soon? It's still kicking um, and causing trouble, um, but I'm not sure how likely it is to happen, mainly because I don't think the English clubs could possibly join one now because of their you know, the, the way things have happened and the guarantees they've had to give to the Premier League and the agreements that they would you know, forfeit points and huge amounts of money and everything if they if they did join a breakaway league again. I think they'd even, you know, they'd even face expulsion from the Premier League. So I suppose a big question is, could there be a European Super League without any English teams? I don't think they could. Martin, how, how much money would they have to, you know, what, what's the, what would the fine be if English clubs were to kind of go back on, on their word, if that's worth anything? I have to go back to my emails now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I put you on the spot there. That's why I asked you. I don't know. We were trying to. No, the remember. thing is, there would be look. There'd be punishments and there'd be sanctions. But imagine all of the other big clubs outside of England sign up to a, a new competition. Would we be expecting the Premier League or the FA to turn around to the big six clubs in England and say, "You're just going to have to stay in the Champions League." and play against the teams from, I don't know, Scandinavia and Scotland and, you know, TNS might get in there as well. You know, like, without the other big European clubs, all right, it's not a great competition without the English clubs, but if the others all sign up to it, I think our owners might be in the position of saying, well, we kind of need to be in it as well, wouldn't they? Well, they'd probably say it, but, they know, they have, they have signed these agreements that they, you know, if they want to stay in the Premier League, I think it would be extremely difficult. I mean, there might be a sort of another lengthy legal battle in England to try and allow them to do it, and I think it's I think it's quite complicated. I mean, I don't think Paris Saint Germain. I think the way they've aligned themselves, they they wouldn't join. I mean, you, you can just see it from what you know Juan Laporte was saying. You know, that we need this to combat the state-owned clubs, Manchester City, Paris Saint Germain. I mean, probably down the line, Newcastle United. So they're not going to rush to join in with. Real Madrid and Barcelona and Juventus in a in a sort of does that sound like a great competition to you? That Real Madrid you know playing each other all the time doesn't it doesn't sound great to me if no English clubs are going to be involved and no Paris Saint Germain and probably no Bayern Munich they didn't join in the last one either. Okay, I see what you're saying. This is, here. This is heartening stuff. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was very sceptical this morning before we spoke to you, Martin. Do you know, I just I'm the, glad we got the, you. the power of the ultra capitalist society that we currently live in. I just, you know, it's it's got to me. I just believe that money will eventually talk. That's all I'm saying. And if there's a, enough money on on one side of it, Tony, look, we've mm. seen it in golf, haven't we? Yeah, live um, tour. Th- yeah. Then then some of the big names might gravitate towards it. I would say on the live tour, which you, you could sort of, uh, Martin, you know, could that happen to football? Because live tour seems to be frying incredible amounts of money at players that some have bought into and have ignored the fact that they're not going to get ranking points or play in the major competition. So could football be forced down that road? On a sort of geopolitical, global level, I mean, the way it could happen is, say, for example, Saudi Arabia 
decide that they, you know, that they, they want, they're going to join forces with FIFA and try and sort of disrupt UEFA. And as a result of that, they're sort of, you know, the Saudis get behind a new competition. They, they sort of guarantee lots of money. Some, you know, I don't know. It, 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 it's, it's not going to be straightforward. I don't, mm. I think there's a lot of like, um, a lot of noise being generated by Barcelona, Real Madrid, and Juventus in the last week. And I, I, I think there's still a very, very long way from getting anything significant. The European Court of Justice and this case, I think the future of the European Super League, you say, hinges on the outcome of it. Is there any early indication as to what we, we might find out? Well, I think sort of legal opinion, you know, independent legal opinion, obviously they're not the ones making the decision, but sort of sports lawyers I've spoken to, they don't think the Super League Rebels will win, but I think that they will... The ruling may be that UEFA needs to give more control of its competitions over to the clubs, like, for example, to the European Club Association. I mean, already, there's already a joint venture, and we're already seeing the clubs are getting... Uh, you know, having a lot more part of the decision-making process about the Champions League and... You know that, that that's partly why there's this sort of expanded format. So it, whether the European Court of Justice says that has to even increase even further, I, I guess that's possible. But I, that I don't think that's that doesn't suit Real Madrid and Juventus and Barcelona. They want to be the top. Then you know their their big problem is that they're sort of they've fallen behind the English clubs and they've stated that really. And they, and that's you know they they. they they, they they know that the Premier League internationally is a going to be a much much stronger product than their leagues. They can see the way the overseas TV rights have gone. I think that this is a sort of they think this is their only way of trying to get back on some sort of level terms. And that's another question: is why would the English clubs want to join in with that? Because they've got this great advantage. So. Why sacrifice that advantage? Okay, Martin Ziegler, thank you uh, for joining us on the game with that update on the European Super League. We've had, before we started the podcast, we had a bit of an argument about this between us as to whether we think it might happen. Obviously, you all know I'm, I'm, I'm deeply cynical <laughs> and I believe that money talks in this world and eventually it will. The Champions League's been changed once, twice, a few times now. And even if it doesn't become the European Super League, as Martin alluded to, all we might see is to stop the European Super League happening, the power of European football given more to the bigger clubs as they try to do with the Premier League and consolidate the power with the top six. Now the big clubs in Europe want to consolidate UEFA into, into their hands. That could easily happen without any of us noticing. Yeah, although the, the power already was shifted away from Barcelona and Real Madrid and Juventus. Because of because of the first Super League debacle, and it's now <laughs> ironically been shifted into the hands of uh, Paris Saint Germain owner. Mm. Um, so, you know, uh, there are undoubtedly power plays that lie ahead, and this might be one of them. But I just think if we come back to English clubs, for many reasons, they would be absolutely insane to try and revisit this, rekindle any interest in in joining. I understand that there could be a world in which. There's a rival to a rival competition to the Champions League, as you as you're alluding to, and it would look very appealing to English clubs to to join it. But I think if there's anything that's going to threaten their position in the Premier League, then which which it does, which it does, because of the the, the sanctions that Martin pointed out, there would be another uprising by supporters. Just make me underline that, <laughs> <laughs> not me. Not, not, no, okay. Haven't we already got a European Super League? It's called the Premier League. Who spends over two billion on transfers? Now, Real Madrid had to win the Champions League last year by literally getting over the most incredible. Well, it's the eighth wonder of the world how they won the Champions League last year because they overcome everything that was thrown at them. But the Premier League is so powerful; it's quite obvious all the other leagues are looking at the Premier League and thinking we can't compete with them. Maybe, certainly on finance, they can't. There is PSG, but after PSG, Bayern Munich can't compete with what. Man United could do and what Man City could do even maybe Newcastle so 
it, it is a problem because our own domestic league is already too powerful. But this is why I think a European Super League without Premier League clubs might be appealing to a lot of those other clubs in Europe because they look at the Premier League and they think, how are we ever going to compete? And I, I, this is the strange thing because we, we talk about the big clubs, Juventus and Barcelona, who might want to be in Real Madrid in the European Super League. But I'm looking at it as like, if you're one of the smaller teams in the Champions League that don't get one of the, the big shares of the pie, which one is going to be more appealing to you? The you, break or the, if you're, I don't know, Copenhagen, or the you know, the breakaway one where you get five times as much are money. You, are you saying that Barcelona and Real Madrid and Juventus are now in the Super pleading League for the likes of Copenhagen to join no, them in no, a... No, I'm not. But what I'm saying is if you can create a competition, imagine there are just two competitions. One's the Champions League as we know it. The other one is the Breakaway League, like we spoke about in, in golf, for example. And one competition offers you five times as much money as the other, that being the Breakaway League. Yeah. Now, it's all good for us to say, you know, the Premier League clubs don't need to go into it. Why would they break away from the Champions League? But I'm talking about, I mean, what if you're, I don't know, Napoli? What if you finish fourth in Italy every year? You know, you're not going to win either of these competitions. It's just about the finances for you. Which competition is your owner going to want to be in? The one that you get £200 million, you know, finishing third in the group, or the one that you get £30 million or £40 million for finishing third in the group? By the way, Juventus are playing in front of quite a half-full stadium, like Barcelona are at the moment. Now, there is a real product problem in European football. And that's why they're using all their muscle to try and create something that gives them revenue to be as competitive as they've always been. When the Galacticos were at Real Madrid, they can't do that now. I just... There's an argument that the Premier League is, is doing to European football, football what it's done for several decades now to the Football League, to the rest of the pyramid. Yeah, mm. yeah. It's, it's kind of an upward drag. It's creating inflation and we've seen it. I mean, look... Real Madrid and Barcelona's revenues aren't exactly, you know, tingling. Poultry, yeah. So they've made some serious mistakes. They've been badly run. But they're trying, they are, you know, it has half a point that they're trying to compete now with nation state owned clubs. So it's just a completely backward method of, you know, tackling that problem. You've got to tackle it with regulation and spending. It's got to, you know, it's the same way. And it's the same way. Barcelona the same ignored all that, Gregor. This summer they ignored well, every I know, regulation. I know, I know, I know, and they and they, they even like but, challenge but, but, the but, challenge the authority of the governing body. Yeah. This is the world we're living in now. They're bit, that's why they want to go off and well, take if, it if, away and do it themselves. But, 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 but stories come out about investigations into the the state backed clubs in terms of their spending. No, nothing materializes from it. There are no bans. Those clubs seemingly can spend whatever they want. So there's no point saying regulation will solve the problem. They brought in financial fair play. The problem still spiraled out of control. Okay, so what's the alternative? We just hand over control to the clubs and they decide how, how we distribute revenue. No, but you're saying they're they're you're saying that their position's the wrong one. I'm saying well, they, they, their position is we can't stop the others from spending money, so we might as well fill our pockets with as much money as we can so that we've got at least half a chance of competing with them. But at least at the moment As a capitalist, which you know I am, <laughs> you know, I, I fully endorse this. At least at the moment there is a, a you know a means of distribution that's like it's being it's being pushed to its limits, yeah. but it's it's even it's even far greater kind of level playing field in Premier League than it is in the rest of Europe. A lot of major leagues, You're, it still is in the Champions League, although that's been stretched as well. So as I say again, if you hand the power to the richest and wealthiest and biggest clubs, do you think that's going to stay the same? No, it's the end of fair competition. You said you're a capitalist. Well, free trade isn't really in fair football, is it? Fair competition was a stretch too far. It was the end of like any any semblance of balanced competition. Alison, what do you think? I'm right, aren't I? Uh, I think, well, <laughs> no. What, what staggers me is that we listen to these old men who are, they're, they're like in those dramas about old money versus new money. And they dress up yeah. in their top hats and exactly. tails and they want cocktail parties and they want things to be the way they always were <laughs> and to keep the riffraff out. It's They're just clinging to some semblance of the old ways, yeah. whilst, as Gregor pointed out, not running their own businesses terribly well at all. Well, it's, it's embarrassing. Yeah. The speeches that are coming out about the Super League are embarrassing because, as you alluded to, Hugh, it would not, if it happened, it would not be, it would not, now, now they're alienating the new money, it would not be a Super League at all. It would be... The team of the yeah, badly really, run, badly run old guard. Who are they playing? Whoever signs up to it. Yeah, but the, you just have to give a compelling case. But how Liv Golf that? gave 
200 million compelling cases to a few... It's the new money, not the old money. No, I know, but I'm saying if there's a new competition, you're saying... How do you sell it if they've got no no one decent to play against? Well, yeah, look, you took the golf. Cameron Smith, who is a great golfer, okay, he's... I don't even think he's 30 yet. He left the PGA purely to go to live golf with a sign-on fee of 200 million. That, to me, was the biggest shock, that someone of his stature... It's not OK, it's not the Tiger Woods at his heyday or Rory McIlroy, but the, a golfer of a very high talent. Dustin Johnson was in the top 10 in the world. He left. You know, so it, it started slowly, and people thought no-one would go across, and now suddenly there's like, well, there's enough players for a tournament. But I see it again. There are not fans in golf who will run onto the... Yeah, the 18th I can, yeah. green and like rip out the hole and you know I don't know tear up the green that's what yeah. fans will do we saw it we saw a glimpse of it and if there's any prospect of this being you know brought back to life in, with regards to English clubs they will do it again I'm not sure they are, they, like I'm we saw sure. them we saw them as protectors and we, and we can also have, we had a conversation just before and briefly about there's a new you know younger generation of fans who don't really you know I still think there's tradition passed on in England about Still, it's important that the clubs have roots in the soil here. So, there's a new global fan, a new generation of global fan, and there's enough Mm. enough money and fandom there to to support a new competition like this. But we still need you still need. I also there is still need the traditional fans here. There there is also a tradition of supporting your club, come what may. And ultimately, a lot of football clubs. No, we saw that's not true. Could sign. I'm just saying, could sign some spectacular footballers. Fans then get excited. They start talking about the prospect of winning the Premier League. Most of them couldn't care less about winning the European okay. competition anyway. So it's just like, oh well, this competition provides us with the money to go out and try and win the Premier League. It gives us a great squad. So we might as well be in it. Who cares about whether we win it or not? What do you think would happen if this money was created for football clubs? They didn't even pay players way more than they're getting now yeah okay so the best players would end up going well I, you know you will well, get a yeah. number of them 750 grand well, a week for all of us basically all yeah. 22 players all 25 well, part, players. part of the the super league package was to limit spending to I think it was 55 percent of of the revenues revenue. so yeah. where did the money really go to the owners of the clubs that's another reason they wanted to do it so they they could actually see their way of turning profit rather than losing money so mm-hmm. you know uh, most yeah. of them go way over that Hugh, don't they over fifty-five percent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's yeah. a figure that's there that's seventy so now. Ignored. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Listen, we could have done a European Super League special once again. All we can say is it might happen. It might not. We got to no conclusion on it. Um, clearly, some people would be very unhappy about it. Gregor, namely. Uh, listen, more still to come. Uh, we'll be talking about the Lionesses game at Wembley on Friday night and what the former Spain goalkeeper Ika Casillas and the error that he made uh, this weekend means for football as a whole. This is the game. Remember, if you're enjoying it, make sure you're subscribed. Friday night was pretty spectacular. More than 76,000 fans at Wembley Stadium to see the European champions, England, beating the world champions, the United States, for the first time since 2017. I'm not sure about the performances, but it was end-to-end. Molly Hudson joins us from The Times. What do you think we learnt at Wembley on Friday night? Because we spoke about England missing a couple of of key players. Um, They went out, they, they won the game maybe could have gone either way maybe a draw would have been fair how did you see it? Uh, I agree with you I think maybe a draw would have been fair but I think it it showed that England could cope without those players missing that we talked about particularly Liam Williamson obviously defence has been sort of an area where England have struggled before Serena came in and obviously most of the success under Serena has been with with Liam Williamson at the heart of that so I think although obviously long term we won't want to see England without Liam Williamson I think it will have given her sort of confidence uh, the England that actually England can cope when they're, when they're in those sort of situations because we know at the Euros England were remarkably lucky with the victories that they had in terms of the, the injuries you know they literally went through pretty much the whole tournament without any injuries to key players I think the main thing for me coming away from that game was the mentality I think we often talk about how England are ahead of England and the USA, sorry, are ahead of England and not just England but everyone else because of their winning mentality and I think you saw that when England had that lead to project late on in the game. In the past, they probably would have panicked and maybe they would have drawn that game. But now with the Serena, they, they have that confidence and they have that belief. And, you know, I think it's 
even though it's only a friendly and even though I think quite a lot of the game was spent kind of watching VAR replays, I think England will take confidence from that, just the fact that they've beaten the United States. Do you think it sends a message then ahead of the World Cup that we should be there in the latter stages competing, maybe beating the best in the world? I think it does, but I also think that, that England were already there. I think... Um, Vlad Karadzinovsky, the United States manager, said after the game that you know this, he'd quite he'd quite like to to meet England again in a World Cup final, and that's the level that England are at now. You know, they having won the Euros in particular, they've gone over that sort of final hurdle, I suppose, of, of beating that kind of semi-final where they just sort of plateaued for a number of years. Now they're they really are capable of going out and winning tournaments, and you know we sh- we should do what what the United States have done. We should we should have that level of arrogance now that. You know, we should expect that. And if, if we don't get there, then, you know, that, that will be a failure now. That, that's how high the bar has been set under Serena. There is something else that I wanted to, to discuss with you, Molly, and it was a strange episode uh, over the weekend. The former Real Madrid and Spain goalkeeper, Ica Casillas, uh, deleting a tweet where he, he basically tweeted saying that he was gay. He afterwards said that his account was hacked. And his former Spain teammate, Carlos Puyol, had already replied to that initial tweet saying it's time to tell our story. The tweet was live for more than an hour before being deleted. Both of them subsequently apologised. During that space of time, there were plenty of big figures in the game in in many ways congratulating um, Casillas for his bravery, if you like, um, and sending him the respect that he'd asked for in that tweet. But there were also many, many people, regular football fans, tweeting many homophobic tweets, excuse me, during that period of time, which was incredibly sad to see. And I just wonder what your view was on this entire episode and where you think it leaves us. I think actually it's it's quite ironic because we've just been talking about women's football, how many how many players are, are out and you know have really I suppose taken that that fight against homophobia in football and they've shown that you can be you know a, a functioning you know professional footballer and it's not a problem. I think the men's game is light years behind that and I think that's been that's been shown this weekend. I think I'm part of a, a sports media um, LGBTQIA plus group and I think it was it was one of those where you read the tweet and you thought, oh, this is exactly what we want somebody that has that has come out so simply in a way, you know, there were no sort of fireworks. It was just a it was a tweet, you know, I'm I'm gay, respect me. It almost did feel too good to be true. And I think it's it's just so sadly predictable the response. I think I tweeted that, you know, it's remarkable how out of touch you can be in, in a in a year, well, in the, in the coming months where we're going into a World Cup in Qatar where you can be prosecuted for, for being homosexual. And I think just, just sort of not reading the room in a way of, of how many professional footballers are clearly hiding their sexuality because they feel as though they can't come out. And those that have come out and, and what a big step that's been to set forward. I mean, Josh... Josh Cavallo tweeted yesterday to say it was, you know, such a, I think he said it was beyond disappointed to, to see somebody that he's idolised in football kind of treat sexuality as a joke, right? And I think it's just such a shame to see not only the reaction, but also that Casillas felt that that was okay to tweet. I mean, he said he's been hacked. It very much seemed as though it was a, it was a joke. I know the, the Spanish media were reporting that it was because it, you know, been been linked with a string of women in the press. So I think, yeah, I think it just showed maybe how far men's football, in particular, has to come in order to. And you know, Casillas is is not even a he's a former professional footballer now. So I think it it just shows how how far it has to come, really. The one reason I felt the um, the tweets were not real straight away was because the big problem I think with men's football and players coming out is. Most male footballers are encouraged still to have a traditional lifestyle and most footballers have wives or girlfriends. So if they come out, they're not coming out on their own. They're, they're involving their whole families in, in what was a lie. So you, it, it goes much more deep than a tweet or having the bravery in inverted commas to tell the truth because you're not just talking about yourself. If you've played along with the image that you're supposed to portray as a professional male footballer, that will be that you are, if you're not in a long-term relationship, you are constantly photographed in the company of women. And therefore, if you were to tweet, please respect me, I'm gay, you're actually saying, oh, and I've been disrespecting all the 
women I've had relationships with and the people I've lied to over the years. It's a really deep thing that cannot be... I mean, I'm surprised you were sort of pleased that it was a a tweet and it was so simple because it wouldn't have been simple, would it? Because he's he's one of, I don't know, 99% of footballers who are, are, are married to women. So you, you can't just tweet something that makes your whole life a lie. I think he did, hadn't he recently split up with... Um, last year, yeah, last year. Yeah. But that, still um, make, that would still make a lie of the marriage he did have, wouldn't it? And the relationships he's been having since. Yes, I suppose it would. Um, I suppose there's there's a reason that, you know, not obviously, <laughs> not because not he in this case, but there's a reason that, that footballers believe that they have to hide who they are. And that doesn't make it right, but... Quite clearly, we're not in a society where they feel as though they, they can be who they are. I think, you know, it's not quite the same, but, but we've seen players that kind of dress differently or, or maybe, you know, support different causes on social media kind of get consistent abuse because they don't fit the norm. And I think that's a problem that kind of men's football still has, that, that very sort of, it is sort of old-fashioned view of, of what a footballer is, I suppose. And, yeah, I suppose... The, <laughs> It, it did feel too good to be true that it couldn't just be a it couldn't just be a tweet. This is who I am because obviously we've we've seen with with footballers coming out in the past it it becomes a huge sort of multimedia sort of PR exercise to try and ensure you're getting the right message across when you do come out. So I think it was never likely to be true, but I think there was also a feeling in a few of the sort of group chats that I'm in of, of surely it's 2022 and you can't be joking about something like that. Surely you must not be naive enough to know what tweeting that is going to do but clearly Casillas was there's no two ways about about the, you know Molly you're absolutely right that the men's game is is miles behind the women's game in this regard but one thing I would say is that we could we need to be careful not to extrapolate too much from one incident what it says about the men's game because I think there have been great strides made in, in the men's game I think really primarily it says a lot about these two guys and like I know you, they go down your estimation a little bit. It's it's, it's tenured, uh, as we say, particularly in the because of where the World Cup is going to be this this uh, this winter. I just think we can be slightly too quick to say this is what this this means something about the, about the men's game. I'm I'm not sure it does. I think it says something a lot about two men. I I saw the reaction and thought it would say a lot about what a current player would get if they were in a stadium in terms of the reaction from those faceless mob fans on social media, I wouldn't have expected players to get abuse if they came out as being on social homo- media. homosexual in a stadium. But when I saw the abuse on social media, I thought, if it's like this on social media... Yeah, but it's social media. I, you look, there will be idiots in stadiums who would, but I still think we've come we've come quite a long way, and I'm not, not certain that that's true, actually, now. I think that certainly home support would be... You know, greatly in support of a of a player who did that, and mm. then there w- there will be there would be idiots, and you would probably hear some, you know, unsavoury chants and whatnot. But I think I think we've come a long way, yeah. and I don't. I, I just as I say, my my it's only quite a res- sad thing to say, and then say we've come a long way. But my no, my only reservation about as I say, my only reservation about this is not just not just the actions of two guys who've who've made a really off colour joke and and you know will undoubtedly regret mm. it. I don't think that says. That necessarily is reflective of where the main scheme is, is at now. I I'd agree. I I think there's a part of me, and I've said this for quite a number of years, that the game is ready for men to come out. And when the reaction happened as as it did the other day, and when there was a Scottish player recently who came out, didn't he? Who was playing in the SPL? Is that right, Gregor? Lower leagues. Lower leagues. Well, he came out, but the scramble to get to him by the media was incredible. They've created the biggest story of. And I, I'm, I'm like, well, okay, he's coming out. That's a really brave thing to do. Football is ready, in my opinion, for a player to come out. I don't think it is the 1980s or 1990s and before. I feel it is, that, and there is a number of issues, and that Alison's touched on one of them. But the game would embrace it generally, but you are never going to get away from certain people or their religious beliefs that would make it a problem for them. But I generally, like in the women's game, it's accepted and no one's really... It's not a big deal. I think we're, we are ready right now. I think that they will get an incredible support. They will get support from their 
clubs from their managers and from their teammates. That's, yep. that's been the crucial change, I think, in the last mm-hmm. 10 yep. years, maybe five years. But whenever I've talked, interviewed players or managers about it, you know, they will bend over backwards to say, I will, I, I, if, if a player wants to come to me and talk to me about it, mm. I will help them come out in the dressing room. You know, the, I ca- think the, the dressing cap- room captains will... feel it's their role to encourage people exactly. to be open and honest. It's the fans. It's it's because it, it's seen as a tool in which to. Do you think we might be surprised? Somebody. Do you think we might be surprised by fans' reaction? There's a part. There's a, a big part of me that thinks we've been a little. Oh, I'm being a little bit ignorant, ignorant here. If I'm thinking, oh, every fan in the country is going to suddenly be chanting at players. I don't no, think no, that will happen. No, not every fan. an audible minority. Even yeah. even a minority. I I'm not convinced by that. I think there were certain clubs that could be worse than others. I think we'd we'd probably all understand. You know that argument. I'm honestly, I really feel like it's a reaction of the media having a radio uh, phone in straight after the the tweet went out. You know, people scrambling, and it's a mistake. It's a fake tweet. It doesn't even get checked. Molly, what do you think? Your final word on this? Uh, I understand what everyone's saying, but I think if you just look at the behaviour of, and it is a small section of football fans in various kind of sections of of society that, that we don't want involved in football, whether it's racism, you know, we've, we've seen kind of chants directed towards Chelsea players just for playing for Chelsea or Brighton because they have links to the LGBT community. I think, sadly, I think, as Gregor says, we've come a long way, but I still think there's a long way to go in the men's game. And, and as, as somebody that's, that's covered men's and women's football, you just don't get that in women's football. And sadly, in men's football, you still do. It may be a small section, but that small section, imagine if your player that hears that, obviously whoever comes up first is going to be brave and they will get that support from their teammates, they will get the support from the club and, you know, from the vast majority. But sadly, you are still going to have to deal with with that minority. Okay, Molly Hudson, thank you for joining us. I know you've got to go off and speak to Serena Wiegmann now ahead of uh, England's game against the Czech Republic uh, tomorrow night, is it? Yes. All right, okay, yes. brilliant. Thank you. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast as well, thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. Thank you all for listening. We will see you again on Thursday. Take care.